Comics Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan. And DigitalOcean. Go to digitalocean.com and use the promo code Here's the Thing, all one word like you're slurring it, and spin up your own Linux rig for free. And Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and invest in your mind while saving some money. Welcome to the Linux Action Show, episode 411. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hey, Noah, guess what? Big show today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to episode 411 of the Linux Action Show. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to take a look at the big story. We're going to give it its full due. It is episode 411, so Noah, you know what we're going to do? We're give it the 411. You got it, buddy, the 411 <laughs> on this whole Microsoft Bash thing. What's going on? Why can Ubuntu apps all of a sudden run on Windows? And what's Microsoft's big picture here? Is this peanut butter and jelly coming together, or is it going to give you a food poisoning? We'll share our thoughts coming up on this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. Red Hat's got some good news for your pocketbook, and Edge Ubuntu's got some bad news for schools. I'll tell you about that. I got bad news, too, this morning. Purism decided to make me a scapegoat for their bad product and has taken to attacking me on Twitter. We'll give you the updates on their train wreck coming up in the feedback segment. Plus, we've got emails and a huge update on the Noah versus Emma epic battle. And we might even have some live calls. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is what you indeed call a huge show. And Mr. Noah, do you know what we start with? The picks! I think you almost forgot this time. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And this week, we decided to double up on the Runs Linux pick because, well, they were kind of mediocre picks, maybe. I mean, I'm just saying. But put together, I think these two are classics. So the first one, I could totally see me, or at least a younger version of me, geeking out in my older car. The iCarus, an intellectual car PC, a multifunction car computer powered by Linux. Pretty cool. So I have been looking, actually, for a long time for something exactly like this. And what has always appealed to me about newer cars is their ability to interface with my technology. So connecting to my Bluetooth phone and uh, the ability to add you know, apps if I wanted them, basically the ability to be connected. But I don't want to pay the price of a new car just to get the electronics within the car. Mm. So what this allows you to do is it's a Linux-powered device, and I believe it's even powered by a Raspberry Pi, or so their website says. Correct, sir. Yeah, a Raspberry Pi 2 at this point. That yeah. acts as the in-car entertainment system for your car, and then yeah. your car is powered by Linux. It's got a GPS module as well, as well as uh, support for HD cameras for backup, uh, FM radio receiver module, and uh, 4G modem, Wi-Fi module, active USB hub, uh, parking sensors, TPMS monitoring for your tire pressure. It takes uh, SD cards for external storage, and of course, it also has Bluetooth connectivity. Uh, kind of neat pick, Noah. Pretty cool. I wonder how much it is. Gosh, now this, I don't know if I'm, I don't know because I just, I haven't seen a really small company deliver a really intuitive, impressive touchscreen UI that actually mm -hmm. managed to pull off all these things like live traffic. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't be ready to pull the trigger on this personally, but this is one of those devices I'd love to get it in for review at some point and try it out because the Icarus sounds interesting. i-carus.com. That's what I'm calling it, the iCarus. Now, our second runs Linux is big. Double Double runs Linux for everybody. This hotel sign runs Linux, and uh, it's pretty simple and straightforward. It's, it's visually very funny, so if you're listening, you should go look at the picture here, because you don't have a lot of data to work on, but when I show you this picture, you'll undoubtedly know it is a runs Linux. I expand it. Here it is. It is a billboard at a hotel, and all you have, can you see it there, Noah, is just yep. a little bit of grub air 
and that's it. But you know it's a Linux crash. It's literally probably 30 characters at most. <laughs> but you could tell immediately, hey, that's a crashed Linux box on a huge public display. Hey, we, pull, we show them when Windows does it. Might as well show them what happens to Linux. So that was a pretty good one that was uh, sent in by Dr. Dr. Santo S uh, just four hours before the show started. That's a bummer, Noah. That's a, that's a harsh one. You know, uh, I realized I have, like, it's not really a crash, but I have, like, a deadline approaching. I don't know if you knew this. If you have any, like, old-time arch boxes around, you have mm-hmm. to get the latest Pac-Man installed or else it's going to stop updating. I mean, you could probably go manually, you know, build mm-hmm. and install it. Uh, so I was, it's funny that this happens because I went, I did a big update. I went to go reboot one of my machines and... Got an error very much just like that. So I saw an error just like that very recently. Snapshots saved the day, Noah. My freaking snapshots saved the day. Speaking of snapshots, I did that snapshot over at digitalocean.com. You can use our promo code, here's the thing. All one word like you're slurring it at DigitalOcean and get a $10 credit to spin up your own Linux rig up in the cloud. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get your own Linux rig. SSDs for all of the hard drives, 40 gigabit e-connections to the data, to the to the hypervisors, not just to the data center, but to the hypervisor. So you get blazing fast speed. Starting at $5 a month, you'll get four freaking ter- or one freaking terabyte. You can go up to like four terabytes. You can go actually very, very succinctly up. If you go to their pricing page, you can get for 80 bucks a month, go all in. 80 bucks a month which is still less than I used to pay for dedicated hosting. Eight gigabytes of RAM, four core processor, 80 gigabyte SSD, and five terabytes, five freaking terabytes. So it starts at $5 and very easily, as you need more resources, increments its way up. They even have hourly pricing, so if you use the promo code, here's the thing, you can just try something out for testing out in a super fast computer with a great connection. Oh man, and their interface is super, super, super good. They've managed to make it powerful yet simple, which is extremely hard to do for something like this. They got data centers all over the world you can choose from. They easily support Docker with one-click deployments of entire application stacks. They have a community stacked full of great information and tutorials. Check this one out, Noah. How to secure Nginx with Let's Encrypt on? Yes! Ubuntu 16.04. <laughs> now that yeah, is on top that, of the... That's right up my alley, man. I, you know, did you know I, I ran into a limit with Let's Encrypt? There's, it's, there's a 20 limit uh, creation. So you can only do 20 certificates and, and then you got to hold off for a little bit. There you go. You know what? If you want to get playing with Let's Encrypt, check it out. Go over to digitalocean.com, use the promo code, here's the thing. You track out some of the tutorials or deploy the entire application stack. Use our promo code, here's the thing, and support the show. Big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. DigitalOcean.com, promo code, here's all thing. One word, slurn it. Okay, so this week, I got something that uh, a producer and editor Ham Radio sent in. Um, uh, I heard about it uh, on like a thousand news sites. I got it on Twitter. It's a really nice note-taking application with a couple of huge caveats. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you up with the negatives first, and then I'm going to tell you about what I like about it. Okay, so cons are uh, it's based essentially on Chromium. It's like Electron or whatever. It's a Chromium web app. Performance-wise, it's, it's not like it runs like Chromium. It just uses the core of Chromium to, to do the rendering and whatnot because uh, it's, you know, it's... It's, a, it's basically the, the new common way to do cross-platform applications. It's a very common way. And it has a server-side component. I, I believe you can run the server-side on your own if you want, but by default, it syncs to their server. It is a fully open-source application. It's called 
Simple Note. It's the simplest way to keep notes. And to be fully honest with you, it, in UI terms, is very similar to Apple's Notes, the latest iteration of Apple's Notes on their, uh, on their Mac desktop and on their uh, internet devices, their Internet 9 devices. Simple Note is not really that simple, though, in terms of functionality. Uh, it has full freaking awesome markdown support. Class A mark, markdown support. You can sync it between all of your devices, Android, iOS, Linux, Windows, and Mac OS. Syncs immediately, has fantastic search, and the big one, not the markdown support, collaborative note editing. Collaborative note editing is huge, and the UI is fantastic. So I have it here loaded on my desktop. This is Simple Note, where Rikai and I are collaborating on a note about farts. Now, we don't have a lot of notes in here. But, we're but you have the important ones. Right. I also have, like, Linux Fest Northwest projects that we're going to do, which I will probably share with you at some point once I convince you to use this note-taking uh, application. Uh, it is a very, very nice, very quick, very easy to use, to tag, to search, to add people as collaborative note-takers. Noah, we could literally use this application to do our entire last show prep. Because we could, do it next week? we could do real-time note collaboration. The only downside is then we'd also have to like invite Rikai to We could try it. We could give an experiment see how it works. But it's real-time markdown note collaboration using a desktop application. And here's the other thing I really like about it is the mobile apps kick ass. So And they launch super fast. So mm -hmm. it's a great way to take something that you, you catch while you're on your mobile device, like a link or, or something like that, and just pop it right into the show doc. Right now, I, like, I go through like some sort of convoluted bookmark and notation process, and then when I get right. back on my desktop, I go back to that list of bookmarks, and I pull it out, and I put it in the doc, because I'm not going to use Google Docs on a mobile device. That's crazy. But simple note, it works. And, so, and I've used it for everything from keeping track of farts to Linux Fest mm -hmm. Northwest jobs to Hadia was going grocery shopping. I had the car with the kids, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what, uh, we've been out all day long, we went on a hike, it was super fun, but everybody's exhausted, how about you go in, I'll stay in here with the kids, and that way we don't have to get them all unloaded. You know that, that drill, right? Because unloading and loading is a, it's a massive thing when all three of them have car seats. And so she's in the grocery store, and I'm thinking of stuff we need, and I'm just adding it to the simple note as we go, and she's getting a real-time updated, and she can, she can, you know, it's like... Super smooth, dude. And so whether from farts to groceries to show production, it does all of it in collaborative. Or if you just want local secure, if you, well, it's not local, but if you just want private secure notes, it does that as well. You'd have to look into running the back end yourself. But in terms of memory usage and performance on a moderately nice computer, I'm very happy with the speed. And I'm extremely, extremely delighted that they make a first-class Linux client as well. So it's Simple Note, and it's a great note-taking application that I would argue something like this uh, strikes the line a little bit better than something I covered last week, which, which was Q-Own Notes, which is the, uh, mm -hmm. it's nice, but it was, it was more complicated than I want. This is a list of notes and then the note. And it's, because I already write in Markdown, it's extremely useful. You can set reminders to do's. Um, you can forward these notes to other people. You can publish links. So if I just wanted to make a public link to my fart notes, I could make a link, like right here, if I so let me see, let me go in here. I'll go into my fart stock and I'm gonna make a public link. This this could be a fun thing to try. So share, publish, and then I check this box to publish. It publishes the note. I can copy this public link and now the chat room can collaborate with me on my fart note. So let me go over here 
And uh, I paste this here in the chat room. Boop, 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 boop. There you go, chat room. Collaborate with me. And uh, I, so I'm kind of curious to see how that work, looks. And no, you might, well, you, oh, they'd have to have it installed. So if anybody has well, installed, so, collaborate. So your subtle jab, which really wasn't so subtle about me not trying new apps, there is one way that you can get me to try a new app, and that is find me anything, in, including but not limited to G uh, to, to Gedit or VI as an alternative to Google Docs, and I'll use it. Because I, yeah. I don't just... I don't just dislike Google Docs. I can't stand Google Docs. Yeah, I agree. Uh, specifically, too, because it messes with Markdown sometimes. Uh, because well, that, That's one, is I yeah. get yelled at for Markdown. But the other mm -hmm. thing is I can't freaking copy and paste. I either, I either want to completely use my keyboard or I want to completely use my mouse, but I don't want to have to go back and forth between mm. the two. And with Google Docs, I have to select with the mouse. Mm. And then because for some stupid yeah. reason, I can't copy with the right click like I can in every other application or yeah. every other web browser. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to try out Simple Note, and here's the other thing about it is I think it could be really useful come Linux Fest Northwest, too. So something to consider. Check it out. Uh, you guys can grab it if you want. It is uh, it does have a back-end service, but I think it's probably uh, – I think the whole stack is open source. I know the client definitely is, and I have a link to the GitHub page. So it's called Simple Note, simplenote.com, and I have a link to the GitHub page. If you're curious about that, it, like I said, the cons are it is an electron-based application, and – uh, it, so, which means it's basically a Chromium app. The pros are it seems to launch fairly quickly. In fact, if you'd like, I'll give you a little demonstration. So I'll go over here to Simple Note and I'll close it, and then I will relaunch Simple Note, and I will tell you. Okay, so I'm going to relaunch it in three, two, one. I relaunched it. As you can see, it launches pretty fast. You know, as far as it, you know, we're 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 dogging on it for being a, an Electron app. At least I have a Linux app, Electron exactly. or otherwise. Exactly. Where's my Evernote client? Exactly. And I think maybe if Evernote was rewritten today, it might. I think it might be based on this. Uh, so there All right, you go. Chris, I have a sim I have simple notes installed. All right, good man. Yeah, they got a deb. You can download it. It's in the AUR as well. All right. So that's the spotlight. Or I'm sorry, that's the app pick. Not that it really matters. Tell me about this kind of just different names. But tell me about the spotlight, which is a totally different thing and not an app pick at all. Go ahead. <laughs> so the spotlight this week is ZeniPass, and it's made by a company called ZeniWay. And the uh, the head of the company, or at least higher up in the company, is actually an audience member. So he writes in and he says... Um, that uh, pull up what he actually sent in, but basically they have a web-based password manager. And he writes in and says, "I'd like to introduce my project that I believe would be interesting enough for your followers. My company is Zenway, is developing ZeniPass, a new generation of password managers. It is different from existing platforms." First, okay, they got a little. Hold on a sec, no. Hold on a sec. Derivatives of that password. Others keep paper or electronic copies of their passwords. All right, uh, you're doing a better job. Sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, he says, uh, it's different from existing solutions, first, because it will be a web app. It is, therefore, will work on Linux from the web browser and as a browser extension without any installation sure, sure. of an app. It will be open source, and we firmly believe in the transparency of open source when it comes to the security of applications. Users know what they are using, and the community can help improve the robustness of the app over time. So basically what I've gathered from from the from the few minutes I spent browsing his website and reading the email that he sent in is it's a lot like LastPass in the sense that it is a you know a service-based password manager um, that runs inside of the browser as a browser extension, but this project is open source. And so um, and it's kickstarting right now. Eye. Is that Maybe what I'm ready to, to you know to give it a run today? Yeah, but, yeah. Your eye on. Uh, now on Kickstarter, it says too, Noah. So it's, uh, they're uh, they're doing a they're doing a crowdfunding campaign right now. They've got eighty one backers. They're trying to raise thirteen thousand dollars, and they've raised eight thousand dollars. 
Okay. Uh, so so ZeniPass is an open source application that solves the complexity of using secure passwords. At least it's another take on it, and it's open source. It might be worth checking out. Uh, they got nine days to go. It's a little tight, Noah. That's a little tight. What do you think? So, so uh, we almost need I think, to... I think it's worth keeping our eye on. That's what I think. We almost uh, we almost need to do like a uh, password manager follow-up episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, there's only one day left to get the Here's the Thing uh, Linux Switch t-shirt, teespring.com slash here's the thing. Do you have a minute to talk about Linux? We got it in hoodies and long sleeve shirts, multiple colors. Uh, help support our, our efforts at Linux Fest Northwest and... Maybe help the crew come out here and get things under uh, underway because Linux Fest Northwest is so nigh. With one day left to ship, too, you should get it in time if you're going to be there. But no matter where you're at, these are great shirts. Even if you're not going to be at Linux Fest Northwest, you can still rock the message and maybe start that conversation. I don't know. Either way, it's a pretty cool shirt. Teespring.com slash here's the thing. Man, I like that dark green. Check that out. That is freaking sharp. If you'd like to suggest an app pick or a open source project we should spotlight and give some attention to, please submit them to our subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. All right, Noah, let's do the news. Hey, it's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Everybody knows it's Ting. Go to last.ting.com. Go there right now and check them out. Last.ting.com. Get yourself a savings... And check out their incredible service. It is mobile like you've never seen it before. Minutes, messages, megabytes, that's all you pay for. Then it's a flat $6 for the line. That's cray-cray, but that's how they work. They're trying to change the game up. Go check them out at last.ting.com. They'll take $25 off your first device. they got CDMA and GSM networks. If you even know what that means, you're probably a good Ting customer. <laughs> because if you know what that means, then you know that the wireless industry sucks. And you know that there's a much better way to do this. And it should be so much simpler. Like, you need help? You just get to speak to a human. You want a great way to manage your site in the middle of the night because that's when you have time to do it? They have an incredible control panel, really the best in the industry, that lets you micromanage services or just sit back and let it fly. Minutes, messages, megabytes, $6 a month, that's all you pay. No contract, no early termination fee, and they got great devices. In fact, you can just get a SIM card. They're available on Amazon. You can buy them directly from the Ting website. They got the feature phones. They got the LG Volt 2, which is a $66 Android device that I have read is getting marshmallow support, which is ridiculous. They got refurbished Nexus 5s if you want to get a great deal on a Nexus 5. They got the brand new Nexus 6 as well as the OnePlus is over there. They got the Motorola Xs. They got the internet iPhones from the Apples. Pretty nice, but maybe you'd like something free. They are giving a OnePlus 2 away. They have a Ting unboxing and giveaway. You can find out more on their blog. Just do me a solid. Go to last.ting.com first. Give us the credit for your visit and let them know, hey, I heard about them here on the show, and thank you for keeping them on the air. And then go read up on that giveaway. That's a, that's a great opportunity to get a great phone. It also will be very easy to run Ubuntu Touch on. Go check them out at last.ting.com and see why Noah and I have been customers for years. We've got devices well, actually, Noah's got way more devices than even I have, which is, seems ridiculous, but is actually fact. I'm hoping you bring something crazy out for Linux Fest. I don't know what, but I'm hoping it's something crazy. I'll find something. All right. Good. Very good. You can find something, too, at last.ting.com. Feature phones all the way up to the nicest smartphones with great deals and no contracts. And a big thank you to Ting. And a big thank you to everybody for visiting last.ting.com. <clears throat> well, so it turns out Red Hat wants to be in the news this week, and so they went and did a thing. How about this? You know, their profit center, which we just recently mentioned, like last week in the episode about how they just crossed the $2 billion mark, and we said, and their profit center remains those Red Hat Enterprise subscriptions. Well, this week, Red Hat announces they're giving them away, at least to developers, but 
this is a huge deal. A no-cost Red Hat Enterprise Linux developer subscription is now available, uh, giving you access to, among many things, the standard things that you would expect if you were running a Red Hat Enterprise server in a production deployment. So you get the Enterprise Linux server license, you get development uh, tools and long-term support, and you also get updates to those tools. In fact, today, or yesterday, I guess, Red Hat announced the download for the Red Hat Enterprise Linux Developer Suite for developer use, <laughs> which uh, is really just a suite of tools for Red Hat Enterprise Linux Server 7, uh, development tools and more. And you need to have an account, and you need to be in the developer program, which is free, to download it. This seems like a pretty big move, Noah, and I wonder what the educational uh, uh, ramifications could be. What are your thoughts? I think that uh, for starters, I I think that there you know a lot of people you know have your same reaction, which is that well Red Hat makes all their money from subscriptions, so isn't giving this away seem a little bit silly? And I think that if we just look a little bit more in the more practical aspect, is that if somebody is interested in using Red Hat but doesn't want to pay for it or can't afford to pay for it, they're using something like Scientific Linux or CentOS uh, anyway. Yeah. And so all Red Hat really is doing is letting those people start with Red Hat and stay on Red Hat and People like me would start on CentOS and then pay for Red Hat subscription when we wanted uh, commercial-grade support and wanted to put it into production. That's still going to happen here. If I, The only difference is instead of starting on CentOS and then blowing the machine away and going into actual Red Hat, what we're going to see happen, I think, is we're going to start with a Red Hat developer edition and we're going to test everything in the sandbox. And then when we go to push into production, we just simply sign in with different Red Hat credentials or call Red Hat and say, the credentials that we're using no longer a developer account, now we want to transition that to an actual commercial support account. Yeah. And I think all they've really done is streamline that process. Yeah, so here's something. So I, I was trying to like, okay, where are they going for? Because it doesn't seem like it's targeted at me, not necessarily targeted at you. Uh, but they did have a blog post where they wrote about this, and they said, uh, the kind of software the developers build and how they build it and the platforms they use are set to dramatically change in the years to come. Software development will become cloud-native, use microservices, and employ DevOps processes. To succeed in a digital transformation, organizations must help their software developers to become more innovative and most efficient. We want to do our part to help developers succeed, which is why today, as part of the Red Hat Developer Program, we are making Red Hat Enterprise Linux available for developers via a no-cost development subscription. Why did we do this? DevOps processes and agile software methods become the primary means for creating software. It's even more critical that software developers have access to the same environments and tools during their development phases as they will when they use they pu and push their software into production. Uh, in other words, because right now they're building on Ubuntu on their development machine and then pushing to an Ubuntu machine, and it's an exact same environment, they've got to compete in the Ubuntu is dominating in the cloud infrastructure. That's how I read this. Not to say it's not good guy Red Hat at the same time, but I read this as, man, we are getting creamed in the cloud by Ubuntu because you can just go, go download the latest LTS, absolutely totes for free. You don't have to even know the difference between Red Hat Enterprise Linux or CentOS or Scientific Linux. You just go get this thing called Ubuntu. It's the same that everybody else gets. It's the same exact thing that you run on your laptop that runs on your mm -hmm. droplet that runs on your AWS instance. And so, mm -hmm. without a doubt, Red Hat is getting creamed. And even this process of you having to go create an account and... <clears throat> become a developer at Red Hat, even though it's free, and then download something different than just going to Ubuntu and downloading their ISO, they are really not going to appeal, I think, to the broad range of developers. There are, I think a lot of people, and one of the big reasons Ubuntu took off in the cloud was you were able to go from, I've got an idea, to banging out a prototype in 30 minutes. 
Um, and that's just not somewhere where Red Hat sits. Now, this is great for people that are going to continue to write applications spe specifically to be developed or to be developed to be developed and targeted at the on-premises enterprise. And man, is this going to be a great boon for those developers? But for the cloud, and they mention cloud, 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 cloud eight times right here, and they also talk about cloud platforms, and they talk about Docker in here. Well, these are all areas where they are currently losing ground to Ubuntu very quickly. And so, to me, it seems obvious you would make this free because you weren't really picking these guys up to begin with. This isn't really so much going to compete with their $2 billion revenue stream. It's trying to reach out to a market that before was just using Ubuntu by default. Let me ask you a question, because I think part of it is that just Ubuntu and Red Hat target entirely different audiences. If you go to Ubuntu.com, show me where I click to buy a enterprise support package on uh, from Canonical so that I can just, I, I need, I am sitting in front of a server. My boss is standing behind me. He's yelling at me. We need to get this problem fixed. I need to buy a support contract. I need to pick up the phone and call him. How do I do that on Ubuntu.com? It, it, uh, the best I could find, you know, just clicking around here is it looks like I have to contact somebody and then they'll get back to me with pricing or something like that. With Red Hat, I literally, I can click on the button. If it's a desktop, it's 399 bucks. If it's a server, it's like, I think 800 bucks. And you, I, I click on, or no, I'm sorry. It's like $150 for a desktop. It's like 400 for the entry level server, I think. And I click on the buy now. I enter my credit card number. I hit a button. I get a Red Hat support ID and I'm good to go. It takes like 45 seconds. And so I think that they target entirely different markets. Yes, Ubuntu has that that cloud VPS space totally cornered. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that's where a lot of money would come in from Red Hat anyway. I think what Red Hat really targets is large-scale enterprise places that have tons of Linux servers that, you know, the, the testing and, 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 the, and the development of the projects are happening on other platforms, be it Ubuntu or maybe CentOS. And then when they go into large-scale production, they want support. I think that's where Red Hat really fits in the best. And that's one of the reasons why I personally, even though I'm a, I am a rabid Red Hat fan, I don't actually use Red Hat for any of AltaSpeed stuff. We have all of that is on community-supported distros like CentOS. Yeah, you do make a really good point in the when you are the category of user that you don't even want to have to go Google how do I get a hold of these guys. You want to call 1-800-HELP-ME and have somebody answer the phone. Red Hat has that nailed. No other Linux sister has that nailed like Red Hat does. Um, <clears throat> at least in my experience, having ran SUSE Enterprise Linux, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and Unbreakable Linux all in production, um, they Red Hat had the best support. So you're right on that front. And I, I think what this is is exactly, though, a little bit what I was saying, is Red Hat reaching out maybe to the new market that was the Ubuntu market in the past saying, do you like how we have all this? Do you like this about us? The, all the, actually, all of the things you just really well outlined about, about the type of support they can offer, but you want to be able to just pick up and start running for free? Check us out. Where I, where I wonder, though, Noah, is... <sighs> Now you have CentOS, right? And you got mm -hmm. CentOS Workstation. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Red Hat Enterprise Linux and Red Hat Enterprise Workstation. And then you've got Fedora 24 coming out soon <clears throat> in June. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels like the clear path, the clear this is what Fedora is for in the Red Hat sphere is, is very unclear to me. If you came to me as a general Linux user and said, well, who would be great for Red Hat? Or I'm sorry, for Fedora Desktop. Or Fedora Workstation. I, I could have a lot, you know, somebody who loves the GNOME, the GNOME desktop and wants to try out GNOME 320. Uh, someone who really likes the integrated experience and wants to try some of the most cutting-edge software developed by Red Hat and their partners. And somebody mm -hmm. who, you know, wants X, Y, like a lot of things I could outline. But if you came to me as, a, as somebody who's working on Red Hat Enterprise servers and mm -hmm. uh, deploying Red Hat Enterprise servers and developing applications for them, and you came to me and said, well, what desktop should I use? 
I, I don't see where Fedora fits in here. And so it makes me wonder yeah. where their priority is for Fedora internally, because I can absolutely see where CentOS fits in there. And, yeah. and you know, uh, to the Fedora, and, and in some ways, to the Fedora project's credit, I think this underscores that they are fairly independent from Red Hat because they're being competed mm-hmm. against by Red Hat. And <clears throat> I think a little competition here is good because it makes Fedora have to define itself even more so. Um, and now Fedora is uh, talking about, I don't know if you've seen this, but they're talking about like making an even more slimmed down version of Fedora mm-hmm. that would be good for Internet of Things devices. Like They're going into areas where CentOS and Red Hat and Scientific and others mm-hmm. aren't really going into. But do you have any thoughts on where this leaves Fedora, if it impacts Fedora at all? No. I mean, really, right around that, right around, I'd say Fedora... 14, 13 or 14 is where I, I really started to, where there really started to be a, a part of that symbiotic relationship because prior to that, basically you could install Fedora from one through like 13, you would install Fedora and basically whatever you learned in that version of Fedora, you would be seeing in the next version of RHEL. And so it was this really great system of, I tried yeah. everything on my laptop first and it ran great as a desktop operating system. And then a large majority of those stable features that worked really well got pushed into Red Hat Enterprise. And we in around 14 or 15 that totally departed, and it seems like they're almost like you said two entirely different projects. And I agree that it seems like Fedora is continuing to work on something like Fedora Workstation, which encroaches on the Red Hat space. And on the other hand, you have CentOS, which is becoming more of this community-based enterprise distro for 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 workstations. And 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 there seems to be a little bit of overlap. So it'll be interesting to keep our eye on it. And then you at the same time, my last closing thoughts on this are you have Fedora with the Fedora Cloud Spin or Ring, whatever they call them. Uh, I think they call it a Ring. And you have Fedora Cloud, which would seem to be almost in direct competition now with Red Hat's initiative here to reach out to more cloud-like developers. Which right. I, which, remember, let's all remember, cloud-like developers or cloud developers would be another way to say developers who write applications designed to run on other people's infrastructure. That's a cloud right. developer. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about here. And that's a great market for Red Hat to be in, right? Because they're selling licenses to people that are creating those other servers. And that's what a cloud developer is, and that's great for Red Hat. So it makes sense that they would, they would be all in and they would try to compete in that area. It just seems like it sort of competes with Fedora Cloud. Moving on, because I think that's an interesting topic, but I have a good sense that all those individual things are going to remain competitive and it all sort itself out. It's not a big deal. So let's move on to something that feels like a cop-out. And you started watching this a while ago. Uh, freaking uh, TP-Link just took the total easy, lazy way out with the new FCC ruling. We talked about this FCC uh, guidance that came out that made it look like it was going to ban open source firmwares on routers. Then the FCC came out with their position paper and clarified, and then actually specifically wrote as clarification paper to say, we are not trying to ban open source firmwares. We just don't want people going in there and mucking with the radio stuff. Essentially, have at it just lock down the radio so that way people can't go in there and alter the channels or alter the frequencies. You know what I'm talking about, right? Here's the problem. Vendors like TP-Link combine the Wi-Fi antenna and CPU and RAM and all the stuff that's their, their, their system on a chip is all on one chip. And so they don't have an quote-unquote easy way to prevent you from messing with that. So they are just flat out banning open source firmwares on TP-Link products. Uh, I have more information in the show notes, but uh, here's what TP-Link recently uh, posted on their website when they announced this change, which will be effective June of this year. The FCC requires all manufacturers to prevent users from having any direct ability to change RF parameters. 
frequency limits, output power, country codes, etc. In order to keep our products compliant with these implemented regulations, TP-Link is disabling devices, or I'm sorry, is distributing devices that feature country-specific firmware. Devices sold in the United States will have firmware and wireless settings that ensure compliance with local laws and regulations related to transmission power. So maybe we could buy one out of the States that we could flash, but then you're going to start to see fragmentation of devices this way. Now, uh, TechDirt points out that TP-Link could work with the community and developers to ensure that users could mod everything but radio parameters. You know, since it's open source, they could work with the community. But the company statement adds insult to injury by pretending to still value communities, quote-unquote, creativity. Their statement follows up with this, and it's a, it's a doozy. As a result of these necessary changes, users are not able to flash the current generation of open source third-party firmwares. We are excited to see the creative ways members of the open source community update the new firmware to meet their needs. However, TP-Link does not offer any guarantees or technical support for customers attempting to flash any third-party firmwares to their devices. But they're awfully excited to see your creativity. Go ahead, kids, have fun with your little firmwares. This, my opinion, hasn't changed at all since the last time we've covered this nonsense, which is that if somebody really wanted to, like anyone out there that wants to mod the radio to cause harmful interference to somebody else, this is not stopping them. They'll they'll figure out a way. Who does this stop? This stops people like us who want to use the device as it was intended, but with better firmware. And so what the FCC should have done rather than make the stupid regulation is just enforce part 15 and, and just say, or part 97 and just say, Hey, listen, if you are caught causing harmful interference to exactly a, to, the, to the lawful user of a license band, we're going to fine you. End of, end of, end of problem. There is already a process in place that takes the burden off of TP-Link. Uh, right. they, uh, yeah, it is, it's sad. And you know what else strikes me about this is it actually is a really bad business move because you can see here and go, oh, a small minority of users are going to flash a firmware. They don't care. I actually would strongly disagree with that because a small minority of users are don't even know what a third-party router is to begin with, and I would bet a, va- a, a large a large percentage of people who even know what a third-party router is, why you want a third-party router, and how to wire in and install and set up a third-party router, the people that fit those three things probably also know what a firmware is and probably know they can replace the firmware, which means a lot of people that are buying those devices to begin with are cognizant of that as something they might like to do in the future. And if you become the the device that can't do it, you're you're, you're not competitive anymore. Well, and here's the other thing. I hate to break this to, to TP-Link, but they make really crappy routers to, and, <laughs> and access points to begin. No, seriously, have you ever owned anything by TP-Link? We had yes. an access point. Yeah. It had yeah. one freaking job. Yeah. It's its only function yeah. in life yeah. was to provide internet yeah. to this stupid little uh, display thing that had that like that scrolled through images. That's all it had to do. A super low bandwidth. No, and it couldn't even do that for more than two days. We yeah. flashed it with open source firmware. Yeah. Haven't had a problem with it since. The Wi-Fi so, at Angela's house, I bought as a TP-Link, TP-Link router because. Because, in fact, it's the one that's, I think, pictured in the show notes. Because I knew it could be reflashed, that's why I bought it, and it was cheap and available at Best Buy. And Mm -hmm. I tried it for, like, three days with the stock firmware. Like, I always just want to see what it's like. And it had a couple of features in there that I thought were kind of neat. Man, but by the second day, I was having to reboot that thing. Uh, I I reflashed it 
it literally has ran for years without an issue now. So the hardware that they make is all right, but their software is total crap. And I, I got news for you. The majority of people that I know that are at least the serious people in IT industry that are buying TP-Link uh, devices, see the people at scale, they had a lot of TP-Link stuff, is because of their ability to reflash them. So good luck selling your crappy firmware on your, on your otherwise crappy device if we can't put decent software on it to run it and make it actually work. Preach it, brother Noah. Preach it, brother Noah. All right. So now let's uh, take it down, bring it down a notch. We got kind of some interesting news, and I'm sure there'll be more on this after uh, probably be by, by maybe hopefully even by the time Linux Unplugged comes out on Tuesday, but we'll see. Uh, Edgy Ubuntu is essentially calling it quits, uh, and it's it's really kind of unfortunate, uh, they're, although they're super cool about how they're doing it. Uh, John, he, uh, he writes, and uh, this is uh, from uh, one, of the, one of the two maintainers, I believe now, of... Uh, of, uh, of Edubuntu. He says, Jonathan and myself uh, have both been involved in Edubuntu for a long time, almost 10 years, and uh, uh, almost nine for the writer. We were at first contributors, then became council members, and after the council got dissolved due to lack of candidates, the two project leaders. We've both moved on to new projects with the hope that we would one day find some time to work on Edubuntu again. That's why we decided to make Edubuntu LTS only after the 1404 release, hoping that over the course of two years, we would find the needed time to make a good Edubuntu 1604 release. But that plan didn't work out, as we're now a month away from 1604, with little to no work been done on Edubuntu. We could, of course, pitch or patch things up, drop things in, and uh, call it good. But we didn't think that would be fair to our users who are expecting a well-thought-out distribution where all the details have been taken care of. Have you have you seen any Edubuntu deployments in your? Uh... Okay. Okay. None. In fact, the, the the only Linux Linux is taking off in in the in the education space, um, but I have seen it with stock Ubuntu and then more recently, for better or for worse, Chromebooks. Lots of them. I have seen it a lot in uh, schools, a lot. In fact, one of the neat things about the Edubuntu project is they uh, have edubuntu.org/deployments. Now, these are just volunteer deploy uh, people that have come in here and, and posted their deployments. But uh, there are some incredible numbers in here. Uh, so like I was just scrolling through this list earlier today. <laughs> a thousand desktops, a thousand thin clients, a hundred laptops, one terminal server, and one server. That's just an example of one of them, right? Uh, one desktop, two desktops, a hundred desktops. You go through here, 300 desktops, 200 laptops, a lot of schools, 10 desktops, 10 thin clients, five laptops, three servers. Uh, there is, you go through this whole list and these are just people that have, were motivated to go to their website and publicly post their details. You know, way more people download and installed it. That's a small percentage, right? It is big in schools and I, it is big on terminal servers. That's where I've seen it a bunch is on thin client server, uh, clients in schools, which is just, it's just brilliant there. Uh, so I guess here's my I guess my question would be is where does where would Ed, Ed, what what are the needs that are different from Edubuntu that are different from uh, you know any large scale enterprise right. deployment right yeah that's a that's a fair question uh, and you would think that um, that uh, it wouldn't be much I'll, I'll actually get to that because I'm going to talk about some alternatives and I'll essentially answer that question when I talk about the alternatives uh, why don't I finish with this is what they're uh, this is what they're doing they say that's why I'm announcing today that Edubuntu will not be releasing a 60, 1604 LTS version Jonathan and I will focus on an ongoing support for the 1404 LTS until its end of life in April 2019. It's not dead, at least not yet, but the two of us, they, he says, will be happy to sponsor any re, uh, related uploads, any new contributors that want to come out of the project they'll work with, and uh, if they would like to have people take over, they're going to be, they're totally cool to help those people make a transition to take over, but if none of that should happen by the time 1710 is released, they will revoke Edubuntu as an official flavor 
and they will remove seeds and CD image build integration and effectively remove Edubuntu from the release process. There will be no more Edubuntu. Uh, so uh, they're looking for people to take over the project, basically. So you asked, what, why, why do you need an educational-specific one? So in talking about there's two alternatives out there if you want a project that's currently alive. A Debian Edu might be a good alternative, or School Linux, depending on which one you want. It is a blend of applications uh, and also set up to be specifically work work well in a thin client environment. And it has uh, uh, it's perfect. They say it has an advanced network solution that provides a terminal server environment suitable to most educational scenarios. As it comes to services pre-configured out of the box, so that'd be things probably like uh, the terminal servers, you know, the TFTP server and things like that. Another alternative is Ubermix, uh, which is kind of neat because I think it started from a school. Uh, Ubermix is an all-free, specifically built Linux-based. Uh, operating system designed from the ground up with the needs of education in mind. Built by educators with an eye towards student and teacher empowerment, Ubermix takes the complexity out of student devices by making them reliable and easy to use as a cell phone. So uh, a lot of times in these releases, and this is the case with Edubuntu, you, you change some of the default applications to make them a little more kid-friendly. You install some of the learning applications that are open source and out there that don't always necessarily end up in the distro repos. And the other things you do is you change some of the settings for, like, the search to be, like, a kid-safe search. You change, you know, it's, it's, like an, it's like an accumulation of 200 little changes you make to the UI and whatnot that, per, you know, that the system administrators don't have to make now when they go deploy a hundred of these things because it, you know, it's all about mass deployment in a school right. district. Uh, and then uh, in the case of some of these, it is, I have actually used some of these educational distributions in the past when, I'm, when I just want to bang out a terminal server real quick, just because they make setting up a Linux terminal server like dead simple. And so, mm-hmm. and you know, that's, that's not, that's not like, like in the process that I want to go relearn real quick. And so I might sometimes go get an educational release, use it for that, and then just convert it over to a standard desktop and have a terminal mm-hmm. server that was set up in like 15 minutes. Uh, right. So uh, it's really designed for people who don't live on Linux desktops all the day. Maybe they have Mac or Windows desktops, like uh, in the school tech office. Uh, and so they don't know where to go to change the theme to have a slightly larger font. And they don't know where gotcha. to go to set all these things because they don't use gotcha. Linux on a regular basis. So it's really appealing to them. And it, because of their, a lot of a lot of them make it really easy to set up a terminal server, it's seen deployments you know, in the scales of thousands because thin clients are you know, 300 bucks. They're cheaper than Chromebooks in some cases. So Ubermix and Debian Edu might be some replacements. And Edubuntu is always looking for somebody to take over. And uh, they're doing a pretty graceful step down, I would say. They're you know, giving people a ton of, t- a ton of heads up. Mm-hmm. And you still have a great 1404-based release. Take over. If, somebody, if there's somebody out there that's like, listen, I'm super passionate about it, they're like, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. All right, Noah, that's all the news for this week. This just might be one of the biggest stories on the show in the last decade. Microsoft is bringing Bash to Windows 10. It's a big story, and it has a lot of ramifications. And I'm going to give you my gut reaction, and then later when I thought about it, I'll give you my reflections on all of this. But first, I want to thank our segment sponsor for letting us do this. That's Linux Academy. Go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. We brought that unplugged discount to the Linux Action Show. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and get a great discount on an awesome platform to help you learn about more Linux and all the things around it. Really, the entire technology stack. They have 2,359 videos. They got self paced courses, downloadable comprehensive study guides, instructor help when you need it, and scenario based labs that put you in the middle of everyday environments so you feel like you get that 
real, actual hands-on experience. Graded server exercises are super sweet. You log into a lab server, you perform a specific task, and Linux Academy automatically grades your actions. You don't have to wait around. You got that uh, DevOps thing that the Red Hat guys are talking about, or that OpenStack thing? Yeah, they have courseware on that. Python, Ruby, Android development, Amazon Web Services. In fact, if you check out the Linux Academy blog this week, Huge month of success, Noah. Huge month. Uh, I can't read all these names. There's too many names. But look at the... A so this is the AWS category right here. Look mm -hmm. at the length of everybody who passed different AWS courses uh, from Linux Academy this month. Just huge. Uh, and then look at the list of the Linux courses right here in the DevOps. Look at that. That's also a great list. Tons of success stories coming out of Linux Academy recently. They're getting their content better and better all the time. They're hiring staff and updating old content and keeping it rel relevant and introducing new content at a breakneck pace. Man, that subscription always pays off. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And a huge thanks to Linux Academy for sponsoring Linux Action Show. And a big congrats to all the freaking people on that list. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, holy smokes. Congratulations to everybody. And I bet quite a few of them are listeners. So that's even cooler. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Noah and I don't often pre-discuss topics. Um, in fact, no. even this week, we barely even pre-discussed. But what do I always say, Noah, when we start to talk about something off air? Save it for the show. Save it for the show. That's content. Don't waste content. Let's talk about it in the show. We, we give you guys our honest interactions on a topic. However, uh, the day that Microsoft made the following announcement, I got a telegram from Noah that indicated... He needed to talk about this one because he wasn't sure how he felt. And I, to be honest with you, wasn't sure how I felt about it either. You've all heard the news by now. Microsoft is announcing Bash on Windows. So excited to announce the Bash shell is coming to Windows. Yes. This was at Build 2016 uh, here, and uh, I'll give you a little bit of it. The real Bash is coming to Windows. This is not a VM. This is not cross-compiled tools. This is native Ubuntu Linux binaries running on Windows through the magic of a new Windows subsystem. We've partnered with Canonical to deliver this great console experience, which you'll be able to download directly from the Windows Store. Inside of Bash, you have access to the native file system, VT100 support, SSH, and all of your favorite command line tools. Let's dive into the tech and take a look. So you actually did a little digging around, Noah, uh, about the tech involved. Do you want to just uh, kind of uh, explain what you've yeah. seen? Because they don't go into like real specifics in the video. So right. So the the binary of Linux is the ELF uh, is the ELF. That's that's what the binary executable is on Linux. It's the equivalent of the Microsoft.exe or the PE. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, what's happening here is. What they're uh, what they're doing is they are emulating syscalls inside of Linux. So when you run the ls command or the grep command, it, it, it is going to emulate those Or is it emulate or even translate? Problems. Translate perhaps might be another way to say because I don't even know if it's full-on emulation. I think it's kind of like... Right. Well, it, so it can't actually... It, it, my understanding is, and I, and I could be wrong about this because I'm not a developer, but my understanding is that in order, for it to, it, in order for it to actually interface with the Windows kernel, it has to emulate the, mm. the syscalls sure, that okay. the Windows system right. would be calling. The Windows executables would be called. Okay, so yeah, it's reverse wine. <laughs> Basically, well, and so kind the, of. So the the interesting thing here is that this essentially makes Linux one of the most universal binary formats ever, because this is essentially what has happened on BSD. Is we're essentially emulating Linux syscalls on BSD, right. and now we're doing the same thing on Windows. So if you have a Linux binary, take the ls command for example, it's going to work on Linux, it's going to work on BSD, and it's going to work on Windows. If we get Mac, 
it is, that is the universal application. So that is in and of, I mean, other than Solaris, I guess it doesn't work on Solaris, but that is a really good thing to start with. And it is neat that Windows er, that Windows is now going to include Bash, but that's about where my excitement ends. Hmm, okay. Uh, you know, I want to see, I think they actually do demonstrate Bash on Windows here for a moment. Let me see if I can find that. I can see my local system. I'm going to move over uh, to uh, my C drive. So the C drive is under mount. Here. Uh, then I just, uh, first of all, I'm going to go modify my JavaScript. So there's two parts, my JavaScript that comes down that lights up and uses the Windows functionality, and then I need to change my uh, Ruby code on the back end. So, so he's, he is browsing his C file system from this bash bomb. Of course, my favorite editor is Emacs, so I'm going to use Emacs, but you can use all any of your favorites, they're all there, so everybody can choose the one that they enjoy the most. So they're going to be shipping this through the Windows Store uh, later this year. Could be very soon, might be a little bit out. Uh, before we go too much further, I want to talk technically about how this was done. Um, and so Dustin Kirkland from Canonical was actually the guy at Canonical that was involved in packaging this up for the Windows Store. So they talk about the uh, partnership from Canonical. It goes up to Dustin Kirkland, does it, uh, who's a fairly well-known public uh, figure from Canonical who was working on this. Uh, and he talks a little bit about his experience. Uh, which he hadn't run Windows in a long time, so it was kind of uh, interesting for him, he would say. But uh, he writes, so is this something like a Linux emulator? He says, you're getting warmer. A team of sharp developers at Microsoft has been hard at working and adapting some Microsoft research technology to basically perform real-time translation of Linux syscalls into Windows OS syscalls. Linux geeks can think of sort of an inverse wine. Ubuntu binaries running natively in Windows. Microsoft calls it their Windows subsystem for Linux. He talks about having to package it up for the Windows Store and putting it in a .apx or .appx file and submitting it. What I found to be kind of interesting about this is it, if, the, if the scuttlebutt is right, this is coming out of the ashes of the technology that Microsoft developed for Windows Mobile to run Android applications. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but uh, Paul Thorat and Mary Jo Foley recently implied in their podcast that it is, in, in fact, the sort of phoenix rising from the ashes of an aborted project that was, let's run Android applications on Windows Phone. According to Paul Thorat, that technology works so well that Microsoft feared it would make Windows application, phone applications totally irrelevant and canceled the project. But they took that research and developed this. That's sort of where the technology comes from. It's not open source. And when I first heard this, I'll, I'll give you my first reaction. Maybe we'll start here. Two things that didn't feel good struck me, and I, I, I don't really know where they came from. But the first was, uh, you know, recently... We've talked a lot about Microsoft in some semi-positive ways, and we've gotten a lot of crap about that. And so I, I think people have sort of started to think that everything that comes out is pro-Microsoft. And I tell you, the, my first instinct was this is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. This feels like an attack. Um, and then when I read that people at Canonical work directly with Microsoft to enable this functionality, I my first reaction to that is that makes Canonical feel like they're just writing, you know, they're just going to, they're going to take a check and, and do the work. And they're so close to a new release. It seems like it shouldn't, their, shouldn't their attention be focused elsewhere, etc. All these thoughts came to the surface. And I tried to think, what is it about it that, that feels wrong? Because to like you said, in some ways, in some lights, you could look at this as a huge win for Linux. Linux now and has a lot of people did. tons of universal compatibility all over Google Plus. It was Linux is one Microsoft releases bash for Windows. Microsoft is admitting Linux is the, is the ultimate platform. But for me, what I read it as 
It's just going to keep people on Windows. The thing is, what they're doing is they're going after the Mac. They're going after people who want a bash, decent command line with a nice graphical interface and proprietary applications that are doing cloud development. We just talked about those cloud developers in the news segment. Uh, We defined what they are in the news segment. You see why Red Hat is pivoting part of their business to go after cloud developers. Well, that's who Microsoft wants here as well. And they see it as people want the Ubuntu command line because up on the cloud, they're running Ubuntu. So this is the same reason why they're doing They're not saying Linux compatibility, right? It's the Microsoft Linux subsystem, and you can run Ubuntu applications. You can run the Ubuntu application environment. They're making a very specific statement there, saying your, work, your, your entire work chain now, from your Windows desktop up to your cloud, will all be able to run the same commands. You can build in the same environment. That's what they're going after here. And to me, it actually... It, it, it sort of works when you combine in their universal hardware uh, approach that they're taking to lock in the gaming market into Windows, and you look at the direction they're going with the App Store. It's no coincidence this is distributed through the App Store to get you suckers to buy to get into the App Store because they got to get you to get something from that piece of crap. It's all coming together. It, they're doing, they're locking in on the hardware on the hardware front end with the Surface tablet and the Surface Book, making it trying to appeal to developers. Now they're bringing Bash to the Windows desktop, trying to say you don't need to switch to Ubuntu or you don't need to buy the Mac. You can keep it nice here and cozy and Windows they've been using for a decade now and Windows 10, you know, everybody loves it. We got Cortana and now you also have Bash. In fact, they also announced Android notification integration with Windows 10 if you have Cortana. What? They're obviously going after a particular crowd here. And so to me, it didn't feel like a good thing despite some of the upshots. Uh, What was your kind of reaction? So exactly the same, exactly the same. You hit on you hit on a number of things. So first of all, the reason that they have to do this is because guess what Azure is based in? Ubuntu. So guess what everyone that runs on Azure has to know? Ubuntu. And you hit on another site. Well, another at report. least a large percentage. People don't want to build in the cloud. People want to build on their laptops in a train with no Wi-Fi. And you can't do that if you're constantly having to run PuTTY and SSH'd into a VPS somewhere to build your apps. You want to build it natively, locally, on your computer, and then push it out. So they don't have a choice. And the, the third thing that you hit on that's absolutely correct is that it's going to keep people on Windows. You know, one of the biggest, most frustrating things that I have ever dealt with in, in my Linux open source experience is that Windows and Mac always have applications that Linux doesn't. So they have, you know, the Adobe Creative Suite and they have they have, you know, Microsoft Office and these things that people that are on these competing platforms want to keep. And the problem is with Linux, because we're open source and because we share absolutely everything, Linux very rarely can maintain an advantage that can't be propagated to other platforms. We have FFmpeg. It's a fantastic transcoder, is tremendously powerful, and yet nobody is going to come to Linux to use FFmpeg because you can use it on every other platform. And so we don't have those tools that just say, if you want this power, you have to be on Linux, except for we had you know, Bash and and the, the most powerful command line of any operating system. Yeah, because now Sigwin, even that has gone to Windows. Sigwin wasn't really what people wanted. I mean, you could, you could get no. it done, but... <clears throat> Okay. Here's my counterthought to that, though. Windows has had a lot of advantages over the years, and we still have seen Linux dominate in the server market and grow because of the GPL and, honestly, because it's zero cost and it's vendor neutral. That's really appealing to a lot of people. Microsoft can't fundamentally compete against that necessarily. And so I had an alternative viewpoint on this that I kind of like. Because when you look in the context of all of the stunts Microsoft has pulled off, 
You know, my favorite one to go back to is when they made that big old deal with Novell and they started selling SUSE licenses to everybody and the entire internet freaked out. Everybody thought that was Microsoft coming backdooring into Linux and they were going to launch a... Uh, there was a whole controversy around Mono. It spurred the revolt against Mono, and there was an entire Microsoft backlash because they were coming in and destroying and taking over the Linux ecosystem. Never happened. Never went anywhere. And now it turns out they're bending over backwards more than ever to appeal to people in some sort of Linux way. So if you look at history, history will tell us this actually won't really hurt Linux overall. Could slow over some migrations. But then I got mm -hmm. to thinking, Noah, here's the thing. What do we always say before you switch somebody to Linux? Give them a little time on some of the familiar applications on the Windows desktop. Let them use Firefox or LibreOffice. Let them use Pigeon Instant Messenger or, or whatever. Let them use these open, GIMP. Let them use these open source tools like FFmpeg on the Windows desktop. So that way, when they make the transition over to Windows or from Windows to Linux, it's not a big like culture clash. It's not a big everything looks different. Everything's different. LibreOffice mm. still works like LibreOffice. Google Docs and Chrome, Firefox all work the same. And now you could even say, well, even your command line could be the same. You want to start learning some Linux tools? Install the Linux subsystem. You can play around on that a little bit. And then when you want a grown-up operating system for big girls and boys, then you go actually install a real Ubuntu or Linux system. And so I think in just as many ways as having applications available for the Windows platform helps people make the move over, I think this might as well. So if anything... I think the problems of Windows are going to prevent people from using Windows. And I think adding the bash command line doesn't really change much in the big grand picture. Because you always had SigWin. You could always open up Putty to a VPS when you had connectivity. And if you're sitting yeah. down at a desk, you probably do have connectivity. So you could always have it in a terminal window nearby anyways. It doesn't fundamentally change the fact that Windows, after a few, few months, is a steaming pile that needs constant upkeep and runs well, like crap. I mean, yeah, and we get to keep our kernel, right? Like they haven't, they haven't, they haven't, they haven't done that. And and the kernel really is where a lot of the stability and power of Linux comes in. And so, definitely, we still have you know our ace card in the hole. But I just the you're you're right. I feel like it just simply slows Linux down. And the the problem with the well, we'll get them used to these things before they switch to Linux. Is I feel like developers need those tools and so they're going to go to wherever those tools are available and they'll jump through whatever hoops it takes to get to those tools and if that means SSHing into a VPS and building their code inside of a computer that they have to pay a monthly fee for, they're okay to do that and now we've just told them that there's no reason for them to even experience Linux in that way because they can do it right on their their Windows desktop and I, I just, I have a really hard time getting past that but hopefully, hopefully what ends up happening is more and more Binary Linux binarily compatible things get built because the code is available Maybe. on all these platforms and it'll work up in the cloud and it'll work on your servers and it'll work on your desktop and thus Linux will eventually get more adoption, hopefully. So the way it works, according to uh, uh, Dustin Kirkland, is uh, in this APPX package that goes up into the Windows Store, there is an entire root Ubuntu file system in this pa uh, application package that he uploaded to the, to the Windows Store. He had to use Visual Studio for a while to clone to make a sample application, edit dozens of XML files. Uh, it was a nightmare under Windows, he said. So he did that work under he had to do that work under Linux. Um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see this. Of course, you know, he has screenshots here of running um, apt upgrade on Windows 10 and upgrading the Ubuntu packages on Windows 10, and that is really weird to see that. Look at that! Isn't that weird? 
That is that is something. Uh, and along these same lines of, of news that impacts the open source community, Mono has been entirely relicensed re- to MIT. At least the runtime has. There's still some proprietary plugins that make Android and iOS desktop development po- or uh, application development possible. They're not open sourcing those things, but the runtime is now licensed under MIT. Um, so uh, there is a bunch of changes happening, and of course, Mono was bought by Microsoft uh, not too long ago. Miguel went on stage. Miguel Itacaza, one of the founders of the GNOME project, GNOME Desktop, yeah, GNOME. Uh, he was on stage talking about uh, being a Microsoft employee now. Uh, and and it's not just limited to Canonical, who is in bed with Microsoft and is super excited to partner up to bring Bash to Windows. Red Hat's all in, too. Let's share the love. Red Hat's promoting .NET on the front page of developers.redhat.com, something we just plugged earlier today when we were talking about Red Hat. .NET on Red Hat is coming, everybody. Yay! Get behind-the-scenes sneak peek of .NET on Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Learn more about .NET on Enterprise. Get up and running on Hyper-V and what you need to know about Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Get started. Try Red Hat Enterprise Linux and the Linux cheat sheet for developers. You know what? In some ways, I say good on Red Hat. Now that .NET's open source, might as well give them a nice open door to come in. Here's a way to develop on Linux. So I'm not I'm not dinging Red Hat, but times are changed. On the, when developers.redhat.com on their front page, they're promoting in huge, oops, not that one. Oh, that scroll wheel. In huge uppercase. Look at that. Dot freaking net in like all caps. .NET on Red Hat on Red Hat's page. Wow. Microsoft is playing a totally different game now. And oh, yeah. I, I am really, the, the work they have done, the work that Sache and friends has done to convince people about the new Microsoft narrative has absolutely worked because everybody in the social feeds was beyond uh, themselves to, to congratulate Linus for have wanting the, wi- the war, so for wanting the war against Microsoft. Yeah, I'm um, totally convinced. So do you think uh, overall, Noah, um, would you want to give it a shot when they release it? Would you want well, to try t- it? <laughs> well, here's here, – I'll tell you this. For the fewer – for the few client, you know, I've got a couple Windows boxes that exist on, on a couple different clients, and I'll tell you this. Uh, it is – more than once I have opened a command, sh- a command prompt up and typed SSH space, and I try and go into their server, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Wimblows. Can't do that on here. I got to get a real computer. That has happened numerous times. So, yeah, if I can get those tools yeah. available so I can do mm-hmm. simple things like mm-hmm. SSH. Actually, I'm, even the things to be able to show the IP address and stuff like that, that way all that is – that's the same. same. I know, and LS is way better than DIR. So there's that too, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, the way – I believe the way it will work is you can go to like start run and type bash or you can go to – you know, in the command prompt at CME when you're on the command prompt when you just type bash and it launches a bash shell. Um so it's just like another shell, uh, which is pretty pretty intense. And uh, this whole thing I, I find to be pretty mind-blowing. It really reminds me in a huge, huge way. And this is why I think I look at it this way. And this is an older lens to look at it. And so I'm, I am, I'm willing to watch this and see where it goes. And I'm really curious to see what the community comes up with once they can run Linux binaries on Windows. That could be super cool. But mm-hmm. it reminds me of when I was... Coming up uh, in the uh, networking world back in the late 90s, and NetWare, NetWare had a huge, huge <clears throat> server market. And to help integrate Windows with NetWare server environments, Microsoft developed the NetWare client for Windows. It was a system that allowed Windows boxes to authenticate to NetWare servers. And it slowly, over time, was single-handedly the reason 
that so many networks switched away from NetWare and went to Windows servers because of all of the problems it caused on the back end. I mean, it was a litany of all kinds of issues. And what Microsoft did is they embraced no- Novell NetWare in a really key way. They integrated it down at the base authentication level of the operating systems. I mean, you could set file system permissions based on your user directory on a NetWare server. Uh, it was full-on integration. And based on that, they got everybody to use that because you didn't have to install NetWare's client, which was atrociously bad, super bad. And so you could use Microsoft's built-in client, and it, for the first couple of years, worked brilliantly. And then over time, I believe they intentionally degraded the functionality of the client through each uh, individual sequential Windows release. To by the time Windows XP came out, it was completely eliminated. And uh, this made it so that so many networks, to support all of their Windows clients they had now installed, had to switch over to Windows servers from NetWare servers. And uh, this feels a lot like that in a less sort of um, direct method. It feels like more of a preventative, stop the bleeding kind of move. Um, but I think it's in long term, I actually think it's going to be ineffectual. Well, let's, let's, end on, let's end on a positive note. Dream with me, if you will, of a world where we release Windows 11. And eventually, they decide that maintaining the Windows NT kernel, since nobody's really choosing desktop anymore, everything is happening in the cloud or in the web space, is really too much work. And so we already have GNU utils on Windows. So let's just replace the Windows kernel with the Linux kernel. And then all of the binaries are now working under Linux anyway. And so basically, Windows becomes Linux. And all of the applications that we have, we can now install in Linux or Windows. I think I'm I'm worried about like even a like even a percentage of our audience that might look at this and go, man, now I get Steam for all the games, and I don't, and if they're, like, say they're having a bad Linux day, like, I don't have to fight with Linux anymore, and I get Steam, and I still get Bash. I could see that being appealing to some users, but... Yeah, I don't think it's going to be as big of a, my, a big of a deal as my first reaction. For, for like two days, and then the computer crashes, and you're yeah. like, oh, crap, yeah. that's why I was using Linux. You know what that means, Noah? We just got to double down on the switching competition and just switch more people to Linux. That's that's the solution to this problem. We can solve it. Yes, we can solve it. I'd like to hear your guys' reaction, though, so we might take some calls in the feedback segment, and also, if you're listening after the fact, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. We'll have a feedback thread, or you can hit the contact page. That's our thoughts on Microsoft just giving Bash a big old hug. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. We have some rockin' feedback to get to this week. This segment is blowing up. In fact, this segment to start with is brought to you by System76. Go to system76.com and get yourself a rig built, designed, created, born to run Linux. Laptops, desktops, and even dim servers. In fact, they just recently updated their all-in-one. This thing is getting solid. Uh, it is currently backordered, so I'm just going to tease you. It's a 24-inch 1080p, 1080p display. Gorgeous. Uh, look at that thing, Noah. Ready? Here it comes. Noah, you should have these, like, uh, anywhere in your office where you have, like, clients coming in, look at that. Pow. You know, actually, you know, you know, actually, where I want to put it is actually not my office. That's not a bad idea, but where I really want to put that, that is kitchen. we are redoing our kitchen. Yep. And I have, I actually, I told the cabinet guys, I'm like, that around the dimensions of a 22 inch computer is how I want a specific part of the kitchen to go because that's going to be my new Alton machine. <laughs> Love it. They got a great rig, system76.com. Stop fighting with your hardware, get to play with your Linux, and just tell them the Linux Action Show sent you. Uh, we're going to have more about our uh, Switch competition uh, with uh, someone from System76 soon. But I did say we might take some calls about the whole Microsoft coming together with Bash. 
uh, topic, and we've got a few calls coming in. So, uh, you know, Noah, we should probably take those calls. What do you think? You want to? Are you? I up? think that's a great did, idea. Oh, hey, you know what? One real quick thing before I mention it. Uh, somebody in the chat room did look, and they said that uh, the Simple Note server right now might be closed source. So, uh, just as a warning for our desktop app pick. And remember, like anything like this, I wouldn't store like anything super confidential. It's just notes, right? It's just simple notes, like about right. farts and jobs and things like that. It's not like a big deal. So remember, keep that in mind. Uh, one day we might do like a totally secure note infrastructure thing when we do a follow-up on our own cloud stuff because I have been continuing to use own cloud heavily. Uh, so I'm looking forward to following up on that in the future. All right. So I'm calling up. Uh, we're going to bring on uh, Dasarni from the uh, chat room. Mr. Darsani. That's how you say it. That's how you say it. Uh, welcome to the show, sir. And uh, what were your thoughts on Microsoft getting together with Ubuntu to bring Bash and Ubuntu apps to Windows? I think this is a sign that they're conceding the server in order to maintain their hold on the desktop. In, uh, Interesting. Market. Uh, you, yeah, right, because it almost seems like an impossible fight now to get on these like super slim uh, $5 a month uh, systems. Windows just can't compete there, can it? Not on price, not on performance. It's, they've tried a decade to, to compete on performance, and now with all these, you know, VPC solutions and you know, infinitely recursing Linux installations because of virtualization and KVM, yeah, they can't. They can't even start. Yeah, that's so an they've got to like maintain their hold on the desktop. Yeah, and I think their logic could be well, if you're going to run it on Linux, for God's sakes, develop with our tools. Use Visual Studio. Use Azure. Use the Windows uh, uh, Linux subsystem. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good insight, uh, Mr. Darsani. Thank you for calling in, sir. Uh, let's give a chance for Irtane. We move right along here. We'll give a chance for Irtane to give us uh, his thoughts on the topic. Mr. E to the R to the Tane. Welcome to Linux Action Show. What are your thoughts on the Microsoft news? Uh, okay. I think that there are some things that are in Bash that may be just wholly found under Linux. Okay, give me an example. I mean, I'm sure you're probably right. Uh, okay. I just haven't really thought about it much. Uh, let's see here. Uh, how about with um? It would seem things like yeah, maybe like here's an example. Now just kind of thinking about it. LSOF or top. Or D-Message. Yeah, list off. <laughs> it seems like, yeah, list yeah, off or, or D-Message or, or, yeah, DH top. Or yeah, stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Those are some of my favorite tools, too. And I wonder, I suppose Kill yeah. will probably work. I wonder. Uh, I wonder okay. if PS will work. I wonder if PS will show Windows processes. That's a great point. Uh, okay. That's a good point, Mr. Tane. Thank you for calling in. Uh, Sweet Lou, you hang on the line. We'll take you in the post show uh, because... Uh, I, uh, I want to talk to you about something else completely different. So stand by, Mr. Sweetloo. Stay on hold. So, no, there you go. Those seem like some pretty good points brought up by the, uh, by the chat room there. It uh, doesn't fundamentally change my position on it, but it will nope. be interesting to see the limitations. <laughs> I guess now I'm just I'm looking forward to the limitations. Speaking of playing towards your limitations, I woke up to a real stinker on my Twitter feed this morning. Uh, you know, nothing like uh, a nice uh, turd in your Twitter feed when you're prepping for uh, the Linux Action Show. Um, I guess I'm gathering that a lot of folks have reached out to the Purism uh, Twitter account mm -hmm. with questions regarding, uh, follow-up questions regarding my review of the Librem 15. And um, if you guys recall, just a quick recap, uh, back in 2014, I, I spent nearly $2,000, about $1,800, I think, um, nearly 1900 on a perfect Linux laptop that respected your, fri your freedom and your privacy. It had a dedicated NVIDIA graphics card, a Core i7, and an SSD, um, but there were changes made to that. They couldn't deliver on the dedicated graphics card, had to go with Intel, 
uh, you know, it's a bummer for nearly a $2,000 laptop, but with a crowdfunding project, they're really trying to do something unique here. You roll with the punches. You, that's kind of what you know when you're going for crowdfunding. Not ideal, but you can't really ding them for it as much as you'd like, in my opinion, because you're taking a risk when you go crowdfunding. So I give them a pass on that, and I don't really give them too much of a hard time for that. Uh, Plus, they had other revisions of different stuff there. When the the Librem 15 arrived, nearly 300 days late, um, 300 days late from when they committed to it for it to arrive, it had a lot of things that just sort of shocked me about it. Uh, The fact that the uh, Windows key hadn't been changed when in their product literature, it shows a different key. Uh, the fact that the, ins- the escape key was impacted into the keyboard that I couldn't even use it, which affects text editors under Linux specifically. Um, there's a lot of things like the fan being so absurdly loud that a laptop literally was unusable and I opened up the bottom and removed the fan and they knew that when they shipped it. They just didn't pursue the firmware to make it work properly. Uh, so there's a lot of things that did go into the review to negatively impact it. But at the end of the review, I said, hey, I look at it as basically like a kit car. I kind of knew what I was getting into. And if nothing else, I have a one-off device. A unique, one-of-a-kind one thing, which is kind of neat for a couple of years to run Linux You were on. much nicer than I would have been had I spent $2,000 on a laptop. Yeah, and you know what? Apparently, a lot of the audience, too, thought it was pretty bad. And so they've been questioning, not overly hostile, but they've been questioning the Purism Project, uh, well, for weeks since that. I think since episode 400 and five or something, and this is 411. Um, well, today, Purism, I guess, got sick of answering the hard questions, and today just said it was my fault. They say that review was immediately all upper caps, followed by an ad for a competitor who sponsored the show. Journalistic ethics, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, which I, of course, had to reply to, uh, reminding them that I paid for it with my own money and that System76 was a sponsor at the time of that review when I bought it. And their logic doesn't really hold up because there's a key word in their sentence that is flawed. You see where they have competitor in their sentence? They are not a competitor to System76. System76 has been shipping computers to customers for a decade they are more competitors with Entroware because they are literally using the same ODM as Entroware, which was the laptop I reviewed on the next week of the Linux Action Show, the Entroware Apollo, which I gave a great, shining, glowing review for. And guess what? Entroware is a competitor to System76. They actually ship laptops to customers on time in the orders of thousands. So let's be realistic here. When I actually reviewed a competitor, a direct competitor's product, I gave it a very good review. So that is a ridiculous cheap shot to make to begin with. And first of all, I don't ever come on here and call myself a journalist either. If you want to label that, you go ahead. I call myself a podcaster. If that makes me a journalist simply because we have some good coverage, so be it. But that's your label, not mine. I don't label myself that. That's, first of all, my, my problem. Second of all, I thought I was pretty cool about the whole situation. I thought I was pretty good about it. So for them to go and attack me afterwards as an excuse feels cheap. And I, I look at this and I think to myself, what else could I have done differently here? Like, I bought the product myself with my own money. I waited 300 days late to get the product. I then tried to roll with the punches as best as possible and tried to be a nice guy about it in my review. Then to only be called out like that in their Twitter feed publicly when people start to question some of their problems. I don't know where to take this, Noah. My thoughts are, this person must not represent the company. This can't be somebody who actually works there. This is just must be a volunteer that is trying to just help out the company. Uh, because, you know, I did a little digging 
and I have the links to it in the show notes. Uh, but they do have a PR manager. She's the gal that's been emailing you too about your 13-inch that you've never received, which they later they later anyways. Uh, so uh, I don't want to give a hard time to Gazelle or whatever her name is because her dad just got out of the hospital. But she's managing their PR department, their social. Mar- she, uh, she's helping a, sh- a social shift for companies that need a new image. And so I don't know if it's her that's running the Twitter account that's completely disconnected from the company or what, because she's referencing things that she's completely wrong about or whoever it is. Uh, and they're claiming that they've offered us a 13 that we never accepted the 13-inch for review when I know explicitly that you have accepted the 13-inch laptop for review. And uh, have emails to prove such. Yeah. You know, the, here, the, the bottom line is is I think, I think you continue to be uh, nicer than most people would be. Here's the reality. Nobody expects any company to be perfect ever. And nobody expects a company that is just starting to be perfect. But – you know what System76 did, since you want to compare yourself to them, when they sent us a computer that we weren't 100% happy with and they put a spinning disk in it and it affected the performance and we called them out on that? They came back and said, gosh, guys, we're really sorry about that. That shouldn't have been like that. And I'll bet you never again has a review unit gone out with a spinning disk instead of an SSD. So it, you can we, – as long as we're polite and nice about it and say these are the, the, the problems that are currently here – the proper answer to that is simply, we're really sorry about that. Let's fix it. And that's the end of the discussion. It doesn't need to go any further than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really kind of a bummer, too, because I love what they want to accomplish. You know, a laptop. I think having a laptop with physical switches for the mic and camera, pretty mm-hmm. clever. It's a nice little thing. And I also think, you know, trying to uh, push companies to open source their binary blobs, that's a good thing. Anybody in, Anybody adding a voice to that is a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's why I backed him, man. That's why I backed him. That's why. That's why I did it in the first place. Uh, but to, to come after it like this seems seems dirty to me. Uh, so really, why would, why are we talking about it? I'm talking about it because on the record, I think this stuff is important to track. You look at the different laptop solutions out there. Number one topic in our IRC chat room when shows aren't on the air is. I really can't find a great laptop. I can't find the laptop that's perfect for me. That's right. And it's for everybody has different reasons. They have different screen and video card and keyboard requirements and different combinations that makes it really hard to find the right laptop for everybody. It is a constant, constant topic and, in our chat room. And you know, I want to get you, – You go to a conference and you sit down. What does everyone talk about at the table? Oh, this is the laptop I have. These are the things that I like about this one. Well, this is the laptop I have, and this is what I like about it. And right. it's you're right. It's a nonstop discussion. Right. Speaking of laptops, I have the Apollo here. I, it's, it's wired in, so it's kind of hard to pick up. But uh, totes have the uh, red uh, plaid uh, uh, um, vinyl sticker now covering the, the monitor. So I have a red plaid vinyl sticker to match my shirt, so that way I'm color-coordinated with my laptop. I'm going to cover that thing in stickers at Linux Fest Northwest. Um, so I'm still, actually, I'm still actively using the uh, Librem 15 and the Apollo. I'm still reviewing, and that's why I want to cover it on this show. The review right. hasn't ended, Purism. You're still being reviewed, <laughs> just like just like the Entraware Apollo is being reviewed, just like the two bonobos I have here on this table are still undergoing review. There is almost more value in reviewing a product that you've been using for three years and having oh, experience absolutely. with that than a product you've used for three weeks. And 100%. so like the the fact that they're kind of blasting us when the review has never ended, we're always going to be reporting on the best Linux hardware for our audience seems ludicrous to me. We're on the same team here. Uh, and I would love to get to the bottom of this. Anyways, so that was how my morning started out today, Noah. So why don't we brighten it up with a couple of emails? Do you want to take our first email or do you want me to take it? Sure. Why don't you take the first one? I'll All take the right. second one. So our first email this week comes in from I think it's I think I'm going to say Nico. Uh, oh no, Rico. Sorry, I zoomed in. Rico. That makes own cloud is not ready. Rico writes. I tried own cloud nine like you proposed. Installed own cloud on Ubuntu running a KVM, 
on an LXE and an LXE, LXE container, both a, a 1404 uh, Ubuntu. I tried several tests. I tried syncing and mixed directory structures with three gigabytes of PDFs and text files, and etc. I also tried bigger files as well. I tried rebooting the server while syncing from the desktop client, just like a power failure might be on the server side, which resulted in locked files and ended up with the root folder not syncing. There was nothing to do from either the sync client or in the web UI. The folder was completely locked, and I'm the only user. Just imagine what could happen with 100 plus users. The fix I found was to clear the OC underscore files underscore locks table in the MariaDB from the command line. The conclusion for me is OwnCloud is not quite production ready. Yeah, that's an interesting test. I haven't tried to intentionally break it yet, but I could absolutely see end users in a 100-plus user deployment. Uh, I oh, could yeah. see that coming up. For sure. I, I, you know, and it's, it's some, I feel like we are missing a piece of information because when I talk to people, um, they talk about having these large deployments of OwnCloud, and, and I just I feel like either, they're, they're, either we don't know something very big, we're doing something wrong, uh, or, <laughs> or there's a lot of really patient people. The most, successful, the most uh, successful on-cloud implementations I've talked to are generally using the web features and not using the sync client. Maybe that's it. Well, I don't know how to pronounce this. I assume it's high. I'm going to say H-Y, so. writes in uh, with Ubuntu on Windows, and he says, These Ubuntu on Windows news makes me angry. I think Canonical is ruining their Ubuntu brand by saying that it runs on top of Windows. At least they should have come up with a product name by Canonical and uh, made by Canonical and Microsoft and never Hmm. put their Ubuntu brand on Windows. It just messes all up. I think it kind of integrates, I think it, I think kind of integrates Ubuntu name with Windows family. And now people who have no idea what Ubuntu Linux actually is will think it's something from Microsoft. So here's my prediction. Canonical will sell the business to Microsoft and Microsoft will create some kind of hybrid server in, uh, environment hmm. with a Windows kernel and Active Directory domain controller so they can fully control the product and all the good stuff of the Linux world without the kernel itself. Never trust Microsoft. Okay, Noah. Um, so, I think he takes it a little far. But. Well, okay. So w- you have heard the rumors that Microsoft is going to buy Canonical. You've also heard the rumors right. that I Amazon. Fool's joke, yeah. Uh, I'm talking about. I'm talking about for like a year now. I'm talking about. I'm talking yeah. about like for a year now. And I'm wondering if maybe this was the genesis of some of those rumors. Was these deals being worked out? These back and forth communications. Um, maybe. You know what though? I think there is an argument to be made that it perhaps muddies the Ubuntu brand a bit. That's why the feedback. That's why I threw it in there. Was I agreed with that point mm-hmm. wholeheartedly? Yeah. It, it confuses the branding name. Yeah. Uh, I I I could actually see that, especially when they're trying to get into mobile and to have the Ubuntu name in mobile also associated with Windows. Could be a bit of an anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, last email of the show comes in from John E. about Simple Crop. I was so shocked when I listened to last uh, to last episode, specifically hearing Noah say he used GIMP to crop or resize image. I had to grab my keyboard to write and tell you uh, there is a much easier way. In my case, I do things in GN View. Uh, it's my default image view or GN View or GWN View. I can never, I never actually say it out loud. GWN View. It's my default image viewer. So you can install GN Viewer under GNOME. Uh, you can go to edit, resize, then shrink or expand the image and edit crop. Please try it once just to see if it fits your workflow. Oh, that's a nice way to put that. Thanks, John. Uh, we actually got that feedback a lot. A lot of different people um, mm-hmm. using it. You know, man, I tell you what, too. Uh, some of the built-in KDE tools are pretty nice. Pretty nice. Functionality that you just come to expect is built in. All right, Noah. So not only do we have a brand new graphic for Emma versus Noah, which I'm pretty stoked about, thanks to Albert Westra, which I know you've seen. I was going to surprise you, but I know you've seen it. Last week, I introduced a new theme song. But you know, I consider myself to have a symbiotic connection to my audience, and I felt like 
wasn't quite doing it. Wasn't doing it for him. And you know, when when Albert came out with this artwork, man, this looks fun. This looks high energy. So I have revamped the tease theme for the Linux Conversion Showdown. Noah versus Emma. Are you ready? This is the new remake. I brought in special talent just for this one, Noah. Here we go. Join us for the world-famous switching competition at Linux Fest Northwest 2016. Go to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for more info. And help the cause at teespring.com slash here's the thing. Yeah, go to meetup.com slash Watch for a meetup, so we got to get everybody to organize. We're going to have multiple production crews. I have... I have a lot of homework for Noah to do before this, and now we have a graphic and a musical theme, and I'm gonna get a new one. That's just the first one. We're gonna keep them fresh, we're gonna keep them coming in here. We got the whole thing lined up, Noah. It's gonna be big. Are you feeling good? Are you feeling pretty confident? I, I am. I actually, I, I don't wanna ruin it because I think this might turn into somewhat of a, I might even use it next week as a show segment, but uh, suffice to say that literally 24 hours after we get off the air and Chris was like, man, I don't know. It's just, I'm kind of questioning Noah's ability to switch people. I find myself in a house, in a house full of a bunch of strangers switching like five people at once uh -huh. over to Linux. Yeah, even, and tell them about the pizza guy. Tell them about the pizza guy. Yeah, yeah. And then after I switch them to Linux, like three hours later, we're going through applications and I'm showing them how to do <laughs> stuff. And the guy delivers pizza and one of the guys gets up and goes to pay for the pizza and he's like, hey, yeah. uh, have you heard of Linux? And I turn around, I'm like, no, that didn't just happen. And the pizza guy's like, no, what's Linux? And then he launches into an explanation talking to the pizza. He's like, you should try it. He's like, do we have an install Discord? Let's give the guy an install disk for Linux. And they convert Okay. So uh, if you didn't see last week, we put a stash bed on the line. If Noah fails to deliver, he's got to grow a stash for six months. If Noah wins, I've got to shave my stash. Now, here's the problem, Noah, is this is my moneymaker, and I'm already getting crap from the internet. I'm already getting a lot of Photoshop crap from the internet. And so, if if you're feeling confident, I think you got to pay up. If if you got you got to come on the line right now. If you're feeling good, you're, which you are, you're feeling confident, right? Feeling all right. All right. If you lose, not only do you have to grow a stash for six months, but anywhere on your body, so it doesn't have to be public view, Windows Vista tattoo. If you lose, a tattoo, no, no. What? Way. What? You worry you're not gonna win? No. What? You worry you're not gonna win? No. What? No what? You're not gonna I'll win? No. What is a little temporary tattoo? I wouldn't risk a Windows tattoo on my body for anything. Nothing. Okay. Nothing, All right. Nothing. Okay. Okay. Then I'll change it. Temporary tattoo, but it's got to be right here under your neck, right okay. here. I'll put it on my forehead. How about that? I'll put a Windows tattoo, temporary Windows tattoo, on my forehead. Deal. If you lose, temporary Windows Vista. On the forehead, plus a stash. Uh, right. And if you win, I'll I will put, shave. I'll put on one side, me on the other side, and 10 right across the There we go. Stash bat plus a tat. It is on the table for the public consumption. Now we just have to track down a temporary Windows Vista tattoo, and I want Vista on there. Okay. I've already got Vista, the razor to shave this thing off. Or eight, eight. It should be Vista, M-E, okay. eight. That's okay, it could be Windows 8. We, we could. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, good. Because I'll tell you, if I, go, if, I, if I have to shave the stash, I'm going to have to go all in on the look. And uh, let's just say that's not going to be pretty. So it's a high cost. Uh, if you'd like to contact the show, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose Linux Action Show from the dropdown. Or even better, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Feedback thread. Start a thread over there. Submit a story. Submit an open source project. Check it out and give it a vote and a comment. All of that stuff helps. You can follow Noah online over at, at Kernel Linux. Yeah, and you can follow me at Chris LAS right there. Oh, yeah. yeah, there it is. Oh, look right, at that. Right below my right name. Right there, right there in the lower third. But not every, you know what? Most most everybody's listening, so they don't ever see that. So you got to tell oh, them from time I'll to time. I'll see this right here. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the show's going to be, uh, 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 I don't think we're going to miss any episodes with Linux Fest coming up. There might be one no. episode we do early, so just check the calendar, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Join us on a Sunday over at jblive.tuv, where you can check it out and get way more show in the live version. But of course, we have RSS feeds available for download later. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. Guess what, Noah? Uh, so I'm about to ask you a question, but before I ask you the question, you gotta okay. promise that you don't take it as like a, as an insult, like as offense to it, because it's not your fault. But I gotta ask you a question. So okay, say I'm, I'm, hold on, I'm actually a little nervous right now. Say I wanted to redo all of the Wi-Fi in the studio again, just because it's just it's so bad. It's so bad here. It's okay. so bad okay. that uh, I'm losing. I'm I'm literally going mental. Like, okay, let me ask you this. Like, what's weird, right? Is like one AP is broadcasting the the, the two different uh, two different SSIDs, right? Right. Yep. In the same room, I can literally have a twenty percent delta in the signal between the two. Yeah, man, it's something is right, just no, sense. no. And so that's here's totally another, here's another thing that's weird. Here's another thing. I got the uh, you know I got the Apollo right, and I'm in my yeah. office and I'm facing the wall towards the uh, the other duplex unit, and uh-huh. uh, I get like ten percent signal. I turn around in my office chair and I, I face towards the living room and I get up to seventy percent signal. Uh, I'm I'm gonna overnight you a new one. Something's then that then I get out into the. Uh, here's the other thing is I think I need two. Maybe maybe okay. more. I think I, I need because because here's the real son of a gun, Noah. Here's the real son of a gun, Noah. The daily son of a gun that really gets me jacked up. Uh, the frickin' driveway is like it's like tease Wi-Fi. Like every now and then, like you get you get a signal and like boom, you're good to go. And then like every now and then you don't have any signal. Every now and then you have a signal, but you can't actually do any transmit. It is it's it's on the cusp of working, but because it doesn't work. And then here's the thing, Noah. Everybody's devices, as soon as you get in the driveway, boop, 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 they all connect, and then everybody's S dies. And the most frustrating thing about it, Noah, is that everybody's sitting there staring at their devices, and I just want to get the F out of the car. Or I wanna leave. Or a, or a podcast is like 98% downloaded and then you get on the cusp of Wi-Fi where it still says it has signal and then nothing and so uh, and it, it's it's horrible Noah it is it is daily how, how long has this been going on about a year now I just got a little pent-up aggression about it because I'm out here's what happened this morning so uh, Hadia and the kids dropped me off this morning to get here for the show right and Dylan needs me to download something on his internet paddle connects to the Wi-Fi download starts then it fails connects to the Wi-Fi download starts and it was it was like, he's like, Dad, what's going on with the Wi-Fi? I thought Noah fixed it. Literally what he said. So yeah, I was like, all right, I'm going to ask Noah what I got to do. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. If you would have told me earlier, I would have fixed it here. I what about an Aruba power. system? <laughs> what about an AP in every room that self-adjusts so we have absolute blanketed coverage? Because here's what I think is going on. Because look, when you do a scan, there's like 30 APs just in range. I, of- okay, so here, all you have to do, I, and I know... You what are we what talking about? I don't even remember anymore. What are we talking about? Access points. You're wireless. Oh, okay. It yeah. sucks. It's right. ruining your life. Right? Oh my God! It's the worst thing ever. <laughs> okay. So now that we're back to that. Yeah. So I'm. A, a package is going to show up at your door. Okay. Now all you have to do with the package, because I I know I know you're not big on setting things up. All you have to do is ask Rick how to unbox it and plug it in. <laughs> yes. That's all I have to do. Uh, you know, there's a video somewhere of me uninstalling his other access point, and and what's funny is I don't think he was necessarily unhappy with it beforehand. <laughs> like you know what I think? Relaxed. You know what I think, oh, Noah? You can hear me? Crap. I think between the three of us, between you, me, and Rikai, I uh-huh. think Rikai is at least invested in this Wi-Fi issue because two reasons. 
least uh, invested. Yeah. Yeah, he because oh, he does, he has he's got data. the least amount of devices connecting to it. He's got like one or two devices, right? And he lives off of the device that's connected to the Wi-Fi. Well, he's got his he's got no, he's, his most important devices are Etherneted. But but you know really? the thing, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, but you know how the thing. Would you be quiet for a second? The thing about Wi-Fi is how does why how does the Wi-Fi signal emanate in in what direction does the Wi-Fi signal emanate from the Wi-Fi router? It is an up in a circular pattern. The Wi-Fi radio goes up and out, right? Into a dome-like pattern. That's how Wi-Fi works. Well, guess what? His office is in the apex, the perfect spot of that dome. It is literally the best spot in the entire house to use the Wi-Fi is his office. Like, there is not a better place. Truth. It is truth. That is truth. And so here's the thing. He's least invested in the issues. Plus, I'm connecting like nine devices, and he's connecting like two devices. Now, I'm not giving him a hard time. I'm just saying, you're not going to get a lot of sympathy, so you're going to have to pay the man in burgers, because this is isn't really his problem. I'd be happy to pay the man the burger, but let me let me just uh, let me go through your rant here and correct a couple of things. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm just just saying. I'm just saying. No, uh, but his office is not. The, the access point is in the living Apex! room. Apex. What? <laughs> <laughs> we moved it from the garage. That's that's the first time. No, I know the you access have, point. You have a total Dude, of four no. Did you not hear my dome-like description of how Wi-Fi signal works? It is a dome-like description. It goes up and over. Up and out like a like a like a like if you have a sprinkler in the middle one of those like circular sprinklers that goes up right. and it's a right. dome right and yeah. so the dome at, so say this is the access Wi-Fi point right right here in the living room this is the AP right right okay no you gotta watch this here is Rikai's office right right here this is Rikai's office this is the AP you see the Wi-Fi signal in a dome-like fashion emanates out and out into the right through Rikai's room into the driveway where it begins to fail and right into my office where it begins to fail but at his office in that point in the broadcast dome apex of perfection noah apex of perfection okay all right well so radio waves work best when the radio is high so can we put the access point not huh? underneath the couch and maybe <laughs> yeah somewhere high like somewhere on the second yeah the floor problem is the first place we put it was in the window but then it started did you know those things can overheat and they shut down <laughs> Start overheating. Did I, oh, did I put it in the window? I probably just didn't want it on the floor. Hold yeah, on. I guess I would get really Hold on. Chat room it. tells me the dome radio theory is not true. Invalidate everything I just said. Chat room has spoken. <laughs>